Hi, my name is Margie Krakowski with Wright Harima Architects. I'm chair of programs along with Tony Smaniato with Studley and Megan Marshall with Jones Lang LaSalle, who is not here today because she welcomed a baby boy in December and is on her maternity leave. Uh, so congratulations, Megan. Uh, Happy New Year. We have a lot of interesting topics slated for 2013, including the plan for economic growth and jobs in Chicago and Illinois, technology in the workplace, attracting and retaining talent are just among some of the few coming up. Uh, please continue to monitor the website and eblasts for more information. And our programs committee looks forward to continue to bring you the best in class topics and speakers. Uh, today's program is being podcast and posted to the Cornet website. If you have your MCR, you receive one continuing education credit for each lunch you attend, and there is a sign-up sheet by the registration desk. Uh, we also have today a few live tweeters, if you can raise your hand. A few of those. They will be live tweeting today, so they're not being rude and texting during the lunch. Uh, and we encourage your feedback at the end of the program. Uh, there will be surveys distributed during the Q&A discussion. Special thank you to RJ Brennan with Hayworth for helping us assemble today's program. And now today's topic, our annual economic forecast, our headwinds turning into tailwinds. With the presidential election now behind us, can we feel optimistic about 2013? We have back by popular demand our senior economists and economic advisors with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, Bill Strauss and Rick Mattoon. Please welcome to the stage our distinguished speakers. Bios are on each table. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. And, uh, uh, I'm going to kick off talking a little bit about uh, how the U.S. is looking uh, nationally, in the world framework, and then Rick's going to take it down to uh, more local state level um, with some of the, his points. Um, so to kick off, I guess I would say that there's both good news and bad news. Um, a couple of people come up to me and were asking me what kind of a discussion are we going to have, are you going to make me feel good or not? Well, let me give you the good news first. The good news is that when you look around the world at the problems in Europe, uh, uh, Europe in a recession, uh, the challenges that they are facing, uh, growth in Asia that has slowed over the past year, um, uh, struggles all around the world, it appears that the U.S. economy uh, is the strongest economy in the world. The bad news is that the U.S. economy is the strongest economy in the world because the kind of growth rates that we've been witnessing and are likely to experience, if this is the best we can do in the world, it is not looking all that great uh, with regard to uh, how, how we will be performing. So for example, you look at the performance of real GDP, our measurement of all final goods and services produced in our economy. Um, you know, we do not have fourth quarter data yet, although it's expected to be actually a little soft. Uh, on a year-over-year -year basis for the third quarter, we're looking at a growth rate of 2.6%. This is slightly ahead of what we think of as trend growth for the U.S. economy, which is in the neighborhood of 2 to 2.25%. Two and, um, and in fact, when we look at the forecast, you can see that most of the forecasters have the full year slightly below 
that trend. Again, indicative of what they think the fourth quarter will ultimately yield. And in part, the reason for that pessimism, I think, could be reflected by looking at our national activity index that we produce at the Chicago Fed. Uh, this is a wonderful indicator, in my opinion. Um, it's very, becoming ever more increasingly cited. Uh, and basically, the way I would phrase it is that if you only have one statistic that you could look at where you want to get kind of a monthly update on how the economy is doing vis-a-vis -vis its trend, this is a really good one to keep in mind. Um, what it basically is, is, is illustrating here is that when we are at zero, that solid black line, uh, it means that the economy is growing around its trend rate of growth. It uses about 85 variables to make this determination. As you can see, uh, more recently, the blue line has been hovering, and for most of 2012, has hovered below that zero. Certainly indicative of an economy which has been expanding, but expanding at a rate that is below what it's capable of doing. In fact, uh, if it got down too low, it's hard to see on this graph here, but about a minus 0.7 to a minus 1.3, that's kind of the recession risk zone. And in fact, we dipped into that in the summertime uh, with our monthly reading of it, but it bounced back up. And currently, with the most recent reading of November, we're sitting on the monthly reading right around zero. Uh, three month, a little bit below zero. So again, uh, when we look at what the forecast is for the year, it makes total sense of what our forecasters are saying. So we have been growing, and uh, fourth quarter will almost certainly be positive when, it, when the number comes out at the end of the month. So we've had now 14 consecutive quarters of growth. Uh, you know, so we are out of the recession. It can, we continue to go into our, what's now regarded as the expansion phase of our business cycle. But it's not been all that impressive. Uh, and in large part, the reason for that is that this recession that we went through, the Great Recession, where output fell by nearly 5%, was associated with a financial crisis. And we hadn't seen anything associated with like that since the 1930s, the Great Depression. Uh, and work that has been done uh, by, in particular, Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff, who came out with a book entitled This Time It's Different, cite the fact that during a financial crisis-led event, the recession tends to be worse, deeper, and the recoveries tend to be far more muted. And we're certainly experiencing that, and that's one of the big headwinds that we're facing. One way to illustrate that those headwinds are still upon us is to look at our balance sheet that the Fed maintains. You can see that prior to the financial crisis, uh, our balance sheet, the main liability we had out there uh, were all those greenbacks that you have in your wallets and purses, uh, all those Federal Reserve notes. In addition, we are liable for the fact that we require financial institutions, every time they take a deposit, to set aside a certain portion of that known as the required reserve. In addition, banks can choose to hold additional reserves above that called excess reserves, but historically that is not how banks functioned. They would pay depositors an interest rate down here, charge borrowers an interest rate up here, and risk-adjusted basis, they would make their profit. So this was pretty much here, this, this little red area were the required reserves in the system. Come into the financial crisis, and you can see in the post period this explosion of red. Well, the required reserve should still be a tiny fraction of red. Uh, you should hardly be able to see. 
Uh, all of that extra amount of red are these excess reserves. And these excess reserves are being held uh, for a number of reasons, uh, both supply as well as demand. For example, the housing market, which kind of led us into this entire problem uh, with lending out to, to, to too many people who maybe should not have uh, uh, gotten that credit. Um, we still have a situation where the housing, while it's beginning to recover, is still all in all out of balance. Uh, so there's hesitation to want to expand and produce many more new homes until the absorption rates, the vacancy rates, the foreclosure rates, all those begin to improve. Um, commercial real estate, kind of similar situation. Of course, it varies market by market, location, location, location. Uh, but I, you know, I was in D.C. early last year, and right outside my hotel window in Crystal City, uh, Virginia, two see-through office buildings with huge signs on there, you know, advertising the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of square feet available for lease. You can't imagine that there's going to be a willingness by a financial institution to lend to a builder to put up a third office building in that market until we see uh, the absorption uh, of, of that available space. In addition, we want, you look at the demand side, there's been a hesitancy to really want to take on a lot more debt. Certainly, there's been this deleveraging mentality. In addition, uh, you know, the economy has not been growing very rapidly. So it's not like the economy is growing at 5 6%, where businesses feel, oh, I've got to invest. I've got to expand. Otherwise, I'm going to lose opportunities that are out there. I'm going to lose market share. Uh, I've got to catch this skyrocket that's going up. The economy's been growing moderately, very uh, slowly all in all, and many of those businesses, either through having additional hours worked for their available staff, hiring a few more people, uh, buying a piece of equipment here or there, have been able to take care of their ability of matching the growth of this relatively sluggish economy. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that has been, again, part of, of this, in, in, in addition, profits all in all, have been doing fairly well. And many of these businesses say that, you know, I'm going to finance whatever limited investments I'm going to do internally and not have to go uh, into the financial markets to borrow. Things are improving, though, but they're improving, all in all, relatively slowly. And you think about the wealth effects that have impacted individuals. Uh, so here's what happened in the housing market and, you know, the uh, uh, Home prices fell, whatever measurement you want to do, Case Schiller, this is a National Association of Realtors, uh, um, they fell by about a third. So uh, huge hit. And this is regardless of whether or not you had a mortgage. You still took a wealth hit. Uh, so about a third of, of households own their home free and clear, but they took a, a wealth hit. So, uh, and we have seen improvement in the prices of homes. Um, so that's certainly indicative that maybe we have seen the bottom, and I believe we have seen the bottom, and in fact, homes are on the mend. Homes are beginning to do well. But keep in mind that the improvement that we've seen, we're going to see a lot of double-digit numbers, right? Housing starts, growth is going to be double-digit. For example, over the past year, uh, residential investment has increased by uh, double-digit, around 13%. Looks impressive, but don't forget the level that we're operating under. Uh, the level that we're talking about, all in all, is still very low. Um, the stock market, right? It's going gangbusters, right? 
more than doubled since March of 2009, uh, which is great if you put your money in the market in March of 2009. Right? Uh, if you've been kind of riding this thing, you know, all the way, uh, you're still, all in all, pretty flat here. Um, so that has been a challenge. You know, yes, your 401ks look better, and maybe we do set a, a new record this year, get a new record high for the stock market, but all that will do is bring us back to levels that existed six years ago, you know, a 0% return. Um, so what is the outlook? Well, the most recent uh, blue chip, which came out this morning, uh, is showing the fact that uh, here you can see their fourth quarter estimate is well below 2%. They're suggesting that we're going to see growth over the, in 2012 come in just shy of what we think of as trend growth for the economy. 2013, 2.2%. Once again, right in the heart of trend growth. Uh, and next year, improving up to 2.8%, slightly above trend. So the good news, I guess, is that they're not expecting to see a recession. But the bad news of all of this is that the growth rate is not going to be fast enough to really improve and remove the tremendous amount of slack that has been added in the economy. Uh, the Fed sees a very similar type of pattern, maybe with a little bit more optimism, but that's l truly little more optimism. Uh, they see roughly the same kind of pattern for, the, for 2012. A little bit higher for 2013 rather than trend, they see a number that's slightly above trend. And then in 2014 and 2015, a number that is just above 3%, uh, about a percentage point or so higher than trend. Uh, again, this will all be good numbers. As you can see, if this happens, these will be the best numbers that we have seen going all the way back to 2005. So it's been a long time since we've seen 3% in this economy. Uh, so that'll be welcome, but still, again, not the kind of rapid growth that we typically would see. One way of illustrating what we should have typically seen is to look at uh, the business cycle. And what I've done here is I've grabbed the two previous deep cycles in our economy, uh, the mid-70s and the early 80s, as well as the current cycle in blue. And I indexed the trough quarter of GDP to be equal to 100. And then I went out 14 quarters, three and a half years, uh, to see how rapidly did the economy gain, recover, and expand. And for both the early 80s and the mid-70s, you can see that output was up 20% from the levels that existed three and a half years earlier. That kind of growth rate is a growth rate of 5.4% and 5.3% respectively. Uh, impressive growth. Back then, we thought the trend growth in the U.S. economy was around 3%. So imagine for a three and a half year period, Following the recession, the economy exceeded its trend by more than two percentage points each and every year. That is how you materially bring down the unemployment rate. Um, what are we looking at in the current cycle? Well, including the forecast for the fourth quarter of last year, uh, it translates into a 2.2% rate. So in other words, during the Great Recession, the economy fell by nearly five percentage points. At the same time, since then, we continued to have population growth, labor force growth in particular. So that's one way of growing the economy. And the other way of growing an economy is becoming more efficient, what's called productivity. And businesses have not stopped 
thinking about how to be more efficient, how to employ technology better, how to be a better manager, uh, and, and that we regard as determining trend. So what we are capable of doing has continued to rise by two to two and a quarter percent, and all we've done over the last three and a half years is match that growth, doing little to remove a lot of the slack that, rem that is uh, in the economy. Nothing illustrates that slack better, in my opinion, than to look at our labor markets. And we were talking earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, we just came through the political season, and I found it, I found it very fascinating that uh, with each report, particularly the labor report that would come out, one side would talk about what a horrible report it was, the other side would talk about what a great report it was. And I think that kind of analysis really leads many of the American people to be, become very disenfranchised with the entire concept of, of looking at economic statistics. And it reminded me of that famous quote from Benjamin Disraeli about your three types of lies, right? You got your lies, you got your, your damn lies, and you got statistics. Um, <laughs> you know, the reality is, is yes, we've been adding jobs. We've been adding jobs now, uh, as you can see here, uh, since early 2010. So uh, we, we're, we're coming on to now our uh, third, third year now of, of adding jobs. Um, and over the past year, we've added 1.8 million jobs. Add them all up, it's over 5 million jobs have been added. The issue comes in, though, uh, is the fact that, you know, the metric that we should be rec uh, recognizing and celebrating is not zero. In other words, we shouldn't celebrate because we had one job added this month as compared to none. We have population growth of about 1%. Our estimates at the Chicago Fed is that we need to be generating a little over 100,000 jobs each and every month just to employ all the new entrants into the labor force, taking into account those that leave. So we're talking about an annual number of about 1.2 to 1.3 million a year. Did we do better than that over the past year? Yeah, by about half a million or so. Well, at that kind of pace, the 8.7 million workers who lost their job during a downturn, it'll take us about 15 years or so uh, to get them all their jobs back. Um, and that's not even including the growth of the labor force that has taken place since that point in time. And in another, another way of expressing it is, with all the job gains that we've had at this point, we have only recovered 55% of those individuals who lost their jobs during the downturn. And again, that's ignoring the roughly 6 million workers who have been added into the workforce since 2008, when the recession began. The unemployment rate, therefore, remains very high, 7.8%. And we can argue about the fact that it's come down. Maybe it went up too much because of the depression mentality that many businesses were operating under. Regardless, 7.8% is still well above what anybody thinks of as the natural rate. In particular, the outlook, according to the Blue Chip Forecast Group, says that, well, with trend growth this year, a little bit above trend growth next year, they see that the unemployment rate by the end of 2014 is still around 7%. So does it go down from the levels we're at now? Absolutely. But just by about 8 tenths of a percent over the next two years. Not very rapid improvement. Uh, 
The Fed sees a very similar type of pattern. Uh, they see at the end of this year uh, unemployment rates that will be in the neighborhood of around 7.5, 7.6. 2014, similar to blue chip, around 7%. But by the end of 2015, an unemployment rate that is still north of 6%, where policymakers think that the natural rate, the longer run rate for unemployment rate, is anywhere from roughly 5.2 to 6%. So even by the end of 2015, three years from now, we're looking at, at the labor market that is still not balanced. We'll still have slack in the market. With regard to inflation, well, it's been our view at the Fed that with the challenges that are being faced around the world, in the U.S., uh, where is in the inflationary pressure is going to come from? All of this slack, the fact that we have so many people looking for jobs, we have homes on the marketplace that are trying to be transacted, commercial real estate trying to be transacted. Uh, you know, where's the inflationary pressure going to come from? And in fact, when we look at the personal consumption expenditures price index, that in fact remains, all in all, relatively contained, below 2%. Um, and yet we've seen oil prices move higher. Uh, they're up around 90-some-odd dollars, but still below the levels that existed back in 2008, as well as, in real terms, below what we saw back in 1980. So we have elevated prices, but not record prices by any means. But that's one thing to keep in mind is that we have another factor coming in. I don't have a lot of positive, you know, really upbeat stuff to talk about, but I do have something here which I think we need to be paying more attention to as we move forward. You know, when you saw the spike in 2008, well, guess what? When we looked at natural gas prices, we saw a similar type of spike in 2008. And in fact, natural gas prices tended to move with oil prices. But we now have a disconnect. Rather than seeing a spike up higher, natural gas prices remain very low, three, $4 uh, uh, for natural gas. And this is, of course, in, in very much due to the fact that we now have this new technology, hydraulic fracking, which is allowing additional supplies of natural gas to be available. And we're on the infancy of really using a natural gas to a larger degree than we have in the past. So demand is still developing for use of natural gas, and the supply is outpacing it at this point. But in fact, right now, some of the pace of, of additional supplies are being restrained because of its relatively lower price. It just, some of it is just not economically justifiable. But we're, again, we're just starting to be able to use it. And this price that we are now enjoying here in the U.S. sets us up as truly the low-cost energy producing country in the world. And companies that are very intensive users of natural gas, chemical, production companies who need natural gas as basically their, their base element to be able to start producing some of the chemicals that they need to produce, are locating here in the U.S. for the first time in decades because we're a lot cheaper than other parts of the world. For example, uh, in Europe, we're talking about uh, $10 versus our 3 to $4. In Asia, it's at $15. So, this is a wonderful opportunity for us as long as, you know, we don't stop it. And by stopping it, I'm talking about, you know, whether or not uh, environmental groups, uh, you know, step in to, to slow things, such as they are doing in Europe. 
You know, we talk about our environmentalists having certain, uh, you know, uh, power position. In Europe, it's, it's even more extreme where many countries have already outlawed the ability of doing hydraulic fracking. And this hydraulic fracking is a technique that can be used all around the world. So uh, assuming that it's safe and everything can go forward with it, um, this is certainly representing a very positive supply shock, especially for the U.S., but for the world as a whole. Um, and this is going to continue to put downward pressure on not just natural gas prices, but competitors like oil prices. In particular, you know, we're just starting to see greater utilization of natural gas for intra-urban transportation. We've seen already a lot of those UPS and FedEx trucks, buses that are running on, on natural gas. Intra-urban, we're just on the cusp of having that occur. In fact, Cummins Engine is just coming out with their very first tractor-trailer class 8 size natural gas engine. And at current prices, uh, they'll save about twenty dollars to $30,000 per year for each vehicle operating on natural gas. Uh, so there is a big move and, and a number of different service stations are right now installing the natural gas fueling facilities along the interstate highway system, which of course you need that infrastructure. No sense buying a Class A truck if all of a sudden you drive off the highway and you've run out of fuel to, to get back to the highway. Uh, so you need to make sure that there's enough, enough of that to get it done. So in fact, if you look at all of the costs, you look at uh, filling up people's vehicles, uh, paying your gas bill to heat your home, paying your electric bill, uh, which is another application where electricity is ever increasingly using natural gas, which have been viewed as a peaker type of, of activity. You know, you only run these peaker plants during the summer months when demand for air conditioning boosted electricity demand. Well, then you'd run these expensive natural gas-powered peaker plants. Uh, no, now they're pretty much being used full-time, and it's coal that's suffering um, because of it. Uh, if we include this all in, you can see that as of November, uh, the energy goods spending uh, for energy goods and services is less than six cents out of every dollar. And what makes this interesting is that if you look at this over the past 52 years, it's been uh, about 6.3 cents. So as much as some people think that we're in this high energy environment, actually, over the last several years, we've been running below the long-run average. Yes, it's higher than what we saw in the noughts or in the 90s, but still, uh, all it's done is kind of moved back up closer to its long-run average, not like we had seen in the very expensive 70s and 80s. Removing food and energy prices to come up with what we call the underlying rate of inflation for the Fed, uh, we're seeing that we've had disinflation uh, that has been occurring of late. Uh, with weakening of inflationary pressures. And again, that all goes along with this whole view of slack. Now, the question that comes in is, is inflation around the corner? Because you do hear a lot of people making all kinds of, uh, you know, prognostications about the fact that, oh, the Fed is printing money like it's going out of style, and we've got hyperinflation coming just around the corner. Well, I look at a lot of measurements, such as the futures markets, where people are betting with dollars. Those are well anchored. This morning's uh, blue chip forecast, you know, I kind of was looking to see, you know, are they going to start having this kind of upward, I guess I should go this way, upward trajectory with the green bars. In other words, is end of 2014, are they starting to see an escalation of prices? No. 
The fourth quarter of 2014 is just as flat as any of the others, uh, 1.9, 2.2, pretty flat. Uh, what the Fed is seeing with going out even one more year is the top line inflation rates remaining below 2%. This is the PCE as compared to the CPI. The CPI has a slight upward bias, so these are, I would say, very similar outlooks uh, relative to blue chip. Um, and, and when you look at the uh, core rate of inflation, also a view that it's going to remain below 2%. And in fact, it's this view of, of inflation remaining below 2% that has, has fostered uh, the Chicago Fed president, Charles Evans' view, that he would like to do ever increasingly more to assist the economy, because if our target is a 2% inflation rate, the outlook call sees us running below that target, let alone the fact that if we've been running below it for, you know, you can see we've been running below it since 2008, well, that means maybe we can run above it for some period of time if, if you're, in fact, looking at averaging 2%. It's not a ceiling. It's an average. Something that's important to the Midwest economy is manufacturing. Um, and manufacturing is regarded as coming in at about 2.2% uh, uh, last year, improving to 3.1% and 3.6%. So uh, last year was a little bit of a stall, and I think in part the fiscal cliff played a role on this, especially for those manufacturers who were tied into military uh, uh, provisioning. They were very concerned about the sequestration, and orders were being cut back. There's this hope that a lot of that activity now is going to move forward and help boost activity as we go forward. Uh, vehicle sales are expected to show gains, but rather than showing a 13% gain as we witnessed last year, decent gains of 4% both this year and next year. Uh, and that's, in fact, a little bit ahead of consumer spending. So, in other words, consumers are likely to spend more on vehicles than other things. But I think that's justifiable when you think about the average age of a vehicle has risen quite dramatically. And as people get jobs and as employment continues to occur, there's going to be a greater need there. The housing story, again, as mentioned, is one of continued growth. You can see that uh, the expectation is, is for we will have put in about uh, three quarters of a million housing starts roughly. Next year, just or this year, just shy of a million. Next year, a little over a million. Uh, all in all, impressive growth. If you do the percentage changes, it's pretty impressive. But again, keep in mind the level we're talking about. Uh, even by next year, we're still talking about operating at a level that is below the historical trend rate of about 1.4 million housing starts. Uh, and that, again, is all driven by demographics. So one would think you eventually have to get back up there. Uh, but, you know, as a share, we're still not producing at that level for a while. Uh, and then I like looking at turning to the financial sector. Uh, what I like looking at is the credit spread between the worst corporate borrowers and the best corporate borrowers, uh, so high yield versus AAA. And you can see that uh, uh, it all in all has been trending lower. And I look at that, and I, and, and I was monitoring this through this whole end-of-year fiscal cliff aspect because I figured that the financial markets are very concerned about the fiscal cliff occurring and that we're going to tip into a recession I would have seen that start to rise, much like we saw here was when we mishandled the debt ceiling debacle, and then here was Greece right after that. Um, you get markets reacting. I didn't see that. So I took some comfort that 
the people who are following this very closely for concern about the monies that they have invested uh, believe that we would kind of get past this uh, fiscal cliff without having a significant negative impact on the near-term economy. So the Fed, all in all, with our primary tool, has kept the pedal to the metal since December of 2008, zero to 25 basis points on our overnight lending rate, the Fed funds rate. And beginning last year, we're now able to share uh, our views. So this is really the first time we've had the opportunity of presenting a chart like this. Uh, we're able to share the view of what the Fed thinks the interest rates will be, given that scenario of interest rates, uh, sorry, of inflation rates, uh, the labor markets, as well as growth of the economy, that we can remain very accommodative and keep basically the Fed funds rate by the end of this year, by the end of next year, at that zero to 25 basis points. Then, by 2015, with the improvements finally beginning to occur, um, unemployment rates getting closer to the natural rate, growth in the economy above 3%, we can see the, that the um, Fed funds rate beginning to go higher. But keep in mind, the media is probably going to get it wrong. They'll be talking all about the Fed tightening policy. Right? The, the reality of why you want to think about this is that the neutral rate, where the Fed is no longer being accommodative, policymakers believe that's around 4 to 4.5%. So right now, think about it in an auto, automotive example. We're driving down the highway doing 100 miles an hour, right? And we're very fearful of getting a speeding ticket. From the Fed standpoint, that's inflation coming about. Well, as we begin to raise those interest rates, all we're doing is taking our foot off the accelerator. So instead of doing 100 miles an hour, maybe by the end of 2015, we're doing 90 miles an hour. Speed limit is still 65. We can still get a speeding ticket, but less, less of a speeding ticket. Um, it's not until we get to 4 to 4.5% or at 65 that all of a sudden we're within the neutral rate, the, the low speeding ticket kind of rate. So it's, it's, uh, that's a simplistic way of thinking about it because, of course, lags involved in all of these things. But again, just think about the fact that as we begin increasing those interest rates, it's not like we're not being accommodative. So even though we would have liked to have taken our Fed funds rate into the negative territory, uh, in fact, uh, the Taylor rule would have suggested about a minus 4, minus 5%. We couldn't do that with a nominal interest rate. So we did another program approach, which the market had dubbed quantitative easing, uh, but what we call large-scale asset purchases. We did all these special programs during the crisis. I've talked about that in the past. Mainly, though, I want to focus on the blue area, which is now what dominates the balance sheet. And these are the securities that we are holding. So here's QE1, uh, one and a quarter trillion dollars of mortgage back and agency securities, uh, $600 billion of uh, treasury securities, and now QE3, uh, where, we're, where we're increasing our balance sheets uh, at a slower pace, uh, but with no date stated for when it ends. Um, so... All of this is being done, again, to try to allow uh, accommodation into our financial markets. Uh, but people are looking at that, and they're, and they're looking at it and saying, wow, you know, the Fed has tripled its balance sheet, and that's true, from $800 billion to more than $2.5 trillion. And they say, you know, isn't that going to be inflationary, you know, with the Fed printing money like it's going out of style? Well, in fact, number one, I want to make get another thing clear. 
Uh, and in fact, Jim Bianco, a friend of mine who was on CNBC on Tuesday morning, used that expression on the floor of the, of, of this, of the CME. Uh, and, and you know, the, the Fed, first of all, does not print money, right? Who prints the money in the country? The Treasury, right? You guys all says that on there, signed by the Secretary of the Treasury. We buy it from the Treasury, and we pay printing costs. Right now, for a $100 bill, it's about 12 and a half cents. Rick and I have to pay par. We don't get a discount. Uh, <laughs> um, so, um, but what we do at the Fed is we create money. When we do our operations by buying these securities, giving out these dollars, we are creating money. And people, well, who is the Fed to be creating this money? Who gave them the authority? Well, first of all, let me ask a question here. How many of you in the audience have ever borrowed money to buy a car, a house, student loan, credit card? Oh, my God. <laughs> Do you know each and every one of you, I can accuse you of creating money? Because each and every time a financial institution makes a loan, they have added to the money supply, right? That's, look it up in your money and banking, macroeconomic text, whatever, that old T-table, one over the required reserve ratio, the money multiplier, remember that stuff? In fact, if you look at the size of the Fed's balance sheet, the monetary basis, we call it, versus the money supply, the money supply is four times larger. So all of that lending creates a much larger size of our money supply than, uh, than what's happening here. Now, of course, ultimately, we do have to be worried about the money supply and what's happening. Because, uh, you know, here in Chicago, Milton Friedman famously said inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomenon. And in fact, Friedman, who won his Nobel Prize for his study of the Great Depression, uh, blamed the Great Depression on the Fed. The fact that even though the Fed was increasing the monetary base, so we were increasing the amount of money that we were putting in circulation back in the 1930s, it wasn't enough. In particular, with all the bank failures that were happening, all the bank runs, right? You all seen It's a Wonderful Life. The failure in that movie, uh, when I watched that, my favorite scene, of course, is the bank run. I just keep hoping that, you know, George Bailey walks into the building and loan, picks up the phone, and calls his local Federal Reserve branch and tells him, I've got to run on my bank, I've got great uh, assets, uh, all these loans that I have out to, to, to people for their homes, they're paying them, would you, you know, lend me some money for the next couple of weeks and, you know, I'll take 60 cents on the dollar as collateral, just get me the money. And a, and a truck should have showed up at the building and loan within hours, <laughs> end of story. You know? But that's not what happened. We didn't have FDIC protection, and there was, a, there was failure there. So instead, the money supply fell. And look what happened to the CPI. Uh, the CPI, you know, inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomenon. It followed the money supply, not, not the monetary base. Coming to what's going on now, you can see that the Fed has not increased the, the monetary base moderately, We've taken it up quite substantially. But instead of declining, the money supply, which has been challenged in terms of its growth rate because of the weak bank lending, it has been rising. 
not rising at the kind of growth rates that we've seen for the monetary base, but rising at roughly 6% per year, something you want to think about more in terms of a nominal GDP pattern. And look at the inflation rate. It's been tracking the green line, if anything, and with all the slack in the economy, tracking well below the green line. So the challenge comes in in terms of policy position and exit strategy is when all those excess reserves start to get released, bank lending starts to increase at a more significant rate, then the money supply could take off. I just don't hear too many stories, and we're monitoring it closely, looking at the data, talking to our contacts, of that happening, you know? And so we believe we've got time, that it's gonna take a long time to heal the financial sector. I wanna close off with three more slides, which for a Fed economist is very tough ground to talk about, because normally we don't like to talk about fiscal policy. We kinda let fiscal policy do its thing, we have to react to it, we have to deal with it, but we tend not to give any kind of uh, prescriptive advice. Uh, to the Congress or the administration. Uh, and similarly, it's kind of that rule that we don't want to hear from them about how monetary policy should be conducted, uh, so the independent story here. But I'm bringing this up because the fiscal policy position is getting to a point that it is impinging on the economy's ability to grow. Whether it was the debt debacle that happened in 2011, whether it's the fiscal cliff that, that hurt growth in the second half or, or, or so of this year, and we're going to have some more of these coming up with, uh, you know, another fiscal cliff, uh, sorry, another uh, debt ceiling coming up in a month. Um, I just wanted to put up some, some data. Right? We're all entitled to our opinion, but not to our own facts. So what we're looking at is the, this is going back to the 1930s, the percentage of of expenditures by the government spending and the receipts, the revenue that they get in. Um, and a couple of interesting things you can see is that expenditures right now is very high, higher than anything that we've seen since World War II. So we are spending a lot of money. Tax receipts are low right now, but again, it, it doesn't help with the fact that we have you know, nearly 8% of our workforce unemployed. If that was down close to a natural rate, uh, that, number one, I think spending would, uh, expenditures would be down a bit, uh, but so would tax revenues. But I think if we look at the last 50 years, and I'm going to focus this because many of you weren't alive in the 1930s or 40s, but many of you were around in this period of the, of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you remember the kind of marginal tax rates we had back then? Right? What were the tax rates in the 70s and 60s? 70, 75% marginal tax rates, very high. And yet when you look at the kind of tax receipts as a share of GDP, the highest we ever saw was at the end of the Clinton administration, 20.7%. And I would put forth that that was in part fake. Right? Remember the dot-com bubble? And all these people becoming multimillionaires on companies that really didn't exist, have a business plan, they lost money each and every year, get prices kept going higher. The one winner that came out of that was the U.S. government, because every one of those capital gains, whether they would be fake or not, uh, led to a very significant amount of capital gains revenue, uh, tax revenue for the government. So it sent that surging up. When you look at this over the last 50 years, 
high marginal tax rates, low marginal tax rates, we've brought in about 18.3% as an average. So I just put forth these as, as, as thought measurements. My concluding slide is basically uh, recognizing the kind of burden that we are putting on, in particular, the young people in the room and the children that are coming around. Right now, $53,000 for each man, woman, and child in the country. Some of us could write a check and take care of that right now, but I don't think many could do that, especially when you think about a typical IRA savings account or the typical retirement uh, savings at this point is something on the neighborhood of, I think, $60,000, $70,000. It's virtually approaching what people have saved for retirement. How are they going to come up with this additional amount? Um, and, and so and my concluding points up here, but uh, to turn it over to Rick, I would just say that now add on top of that, the fact that we are all in the state of Illinois, which when you look across the state fiscal situations, I have often used the expression that we reside in the Greece of the United States. So thank you. Thanks, Bill. As Bill said, what I want to do is sort of put in context the uh, very excellent presentation he did on where we think the U.S. economy is headed into a more local context, looking at in terms of Illinois and Chicago. Um, for those of you who have seen me in the past, you know I usually like to tell a joke before I get to my presentation. Um, this is because often this is the highlight of my presentation. And, uh, and frankly, none of these jokes are very good, so they often don't get a whole lot of laughter. But this year's joke goes like this, okay? So there's a group of economists, and they're traveling through. They're on a safari, and they come across a tribe of cannibals. And one of the things they're impressed with is the cannibals have a store. And in the store, they have the parts of their various victims to be sold off. And they come across a case. And in the case, there's the brains of various of their victims. And the first brain is marked as a, a, the brain of an English major. And it's, it's priced at $5 a pound. And the economists go, well, that seems about right. I mean, English majors are nice people, and they're nice to have at dinner parties. But you know, they don't add much economic value. So $5 a pound seems about right. So the next brain is an engineer's brain, and it's priced at about $20 a pound. And they go, well, that also seems absolutely correct. Engineers are important people. They build infrastructure, important things. They make real contributions to the economy. It should be worth a lot more than the English major's brain. And of course, the last brain in the, uh, in the case is an economist's brain. And it's priced at over $250 a pound. Well, you can imagine how proud the economists are as they start saying to themselves, well, clearly, these cannibals understand economists have the best brains possibly in the world. At which point the shop owner goes to me and says, that's not why it's priced $250 a pound. He goes, he says, do you know how many economists we have to catch to get a pound of brains? So, <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, so with that, I, I want to talk about Chicago and Illinois' economy. Um, a lot of this is going to be similar to what I've talked about in the past. I mean, the one thing that's been a consistent and nagging theme for Chicago and for Illinois is we've underperformed both the Midwest and the U.S. average in terms of our pattern both going into the recession and coming out of it. We've had a much more sort of muted kind of snapback even in this context of an economy which hasn't been exactly going gangbusters. Some of this has to do with industrial structure when you look at Illinois. I mean, Chicago and Illinois has less of a manufacturing presence 
presence was of an agricultural presence. And in its recent recovery, it's been particularly manufacturing and agriculture that's driven Midwest sort of economic growth. And the absence of those industries within Chicago and Illinois have made it so we've had a much slower sort of path out. Um, our unemployment rates are still elevated, well elevated relative to the U.S. average. Uh, you know, Chicago's averaging just under 10% unemployment right now, even at this point in the recovery. The good news is we saw a little bit of momentum in the second half of 2012. And what I want to talk about is which sectors of the economy are probably most important to Chicago and how we're starting to see some momentum in those sectors. So there's some good news sort of based in this. As Bill alluded to, the biggest concern probably long term is the fiscal health of both the state and the local governments in Illinois. Um, at this point, you know, we really haven't done a job at, at addressing any close to the extraordinary pension liabilities we have. The state has, still has a raft of unpaid bills at this point. Localities are under a lot of pressure because their property tax bases have been, have been pinched in this last recession, and they're expecting to get less state aid in the future. So there's a problem with being able to fund government and understand what the sort of services we expect government to provide for us. The last thing I want to touch on is, is Chicago in the last year um, did a number of major studies. There was an OECD study that looked at the tri-state Chicago region um, and looked at, had various ideas for how Chicago might be able to improve its position or what strengths and weaknesses were. And then World Business Chicago executed an economic development plan, which I hear you're going to be talking about later. Um, and one of the things that was important about that is this was the first time in a long time where Chicago had sort of acknowledged that it's been a bit of a laggard in terms of its actual economic development and suggesting that they actually have to have sort of an act actionable plan. The big question is whether the plan actually can be executed, and that's going to be something I think you'll want to bring up with when they start uh, presenting that here. So where are we right now? Well, the last World Business Chicago report had some pretty good news for Chicago. Um, Chicago economy has added 29,000 jobs since October 2011. Importantly, the gains have been in sort of high-paid industries, business and professional services, which Chicago is overwhelmingly a business and professional service town. So gains in that particular sector of the economy are really, really important to economic growth here. Manufacturing up 13,000 and hospitality and leisure. Um, Housing starts have also been rising throughout the region. That's also good news. Consumer confidence has continued to rise, so people seem more willing to go out and spend. And the architectural buildings index has is, is also been rising at a nice clip, suggesting, again, that there's more desire to sort of do new construction for renovations, those sorts of things. So all those things suggest, again, and again, this is cautioning off of what Bill said, off of a very low level, that at least we have positive momentum in terms of where we're going. If you look at... Uh, this came out in Cranes this week. This is the real problem for Chicago, which is this is the gap in Chicago's performance relative to the U.S., both from a gross product point of view, which is the top slide, and then from an employment point of view. And as you can see, all these red bars suggest that even in a slow-growing economy, Chicago has grown even slower, all right? So we have a bigger gap in terms of growth. And the same thing in employment. Again, we really haven't caught up with the U.S. average. Now, the important thing is the forecasters who did this, which was Moody's, um, suggested that we'll start to see some improvement improvement in the second half of this year, particularly in employment, and Chicago will start to get on a sort of a faster growth trajectory. So the idea is if you hang out till the second half of 2013, things are going to be looking better. But again, you can see how persistent this gap has been over time, that Chicago has really underperformed. 
If you look at employment, the other thing that's been frustrating is we've had very uneven sort of recovery in terms of employment. So if you look at professional and business services, which is the top line, you can see we've had a lot of recovery there. We've had a lot of recovery in leisure and hospitality and manufacturing, but we're still losing jobs in things like retail trade, local government, um, transportation and, and utilities, things like that. So other sectors of the economy really haven't come back in any sort of way. So we've had a very uneven sort of path of economic recovery and employment. This covers over, if you take a longer term look at this. So if I go back to October of 2009, it's sort of the, when we were just coming out of this recession and said, how have we done since sort of the bottom of the recession? What you see is Chicago still has lots of red numbers in it. Construction is still 11.7% below in terms of employment. <clears throat> by October of 2012, three years later. Retail trade, again, 2.1% below. Manufacturing is the one sort of happy story with a 4% growth rate, and wholesale trade has showed some gain. Again, total private sector job growth over this three-year period is only about 3.2%. So it's only about 118,000 jobs that have been added. And in other sectors, you've had a similar sort of story. So information is underperformed, down 6.1% over three years. Financial activities is still 2.5% below. Again, the big gain has been professional and business services, and that's mostly been in the last year, year and a half, where you've seen a gain of 12.6%. So you're starting to see, again, this sort of uneven sort of path as to which sectors of Chicago's economy are performing the best. Now what I want to do is something a little bit academic, which is I think one of the ways to think about the future of Chicago's economy is to think about in terms of industrial clusters. Um, in the economic development literature, this has become very popular now to talk about cluster-based analysis. And the idea here is it goes back to the sort of old urban e economics literature, which suggests that the most important thing that cities do is they encourage agglomeration. So they encourage like businesses and unlike businesses to work together to increase productivity, to become more innovative, to have, be able to share resources such as talent pools, you know, public policy, maybe like-minded public policy, those sorts of things. And what the cluster literature tries to do is say, look at each city and say, well, what are the clusters that really define what makes that city tick and how do they perform? So what I've done for this is I've looked at what is Chicago's most important clusters and sort of how have they been doing relative to the clusters throughout the U.S.? And the group I'm going to focus on are going to be export traded clusters, all right? So the traded clusters are those that create the greatest wealth and they're therefore the most important in driving the rest of your economy. The non-traded clusters are sort of local services type things and they do well when the traded clusters do well. So the traded clusters are really the key ones to think about. So what I've done is I've looked at the top five traded clusters for Chicago over a period of time. And this is from 1998 to 2009. And this first one is for employment. As you can see, the biggest cluster from employment is business services, okay? It's employing over 200,000 people in Chicago. It's the most significant. It had a significant downturn in this last recession. Generally speaking, it kind of had a real surge coming out of the 1990s into the 2000s, where Chicago really sort of transformed its economy, be very business service oriented. And now it's sort of flattened out in terms of performance. The next one that actually shows consistent growth has been education and knowledge creation, okay? Chicago's become more of an education town, and it's continued to trend up in terms of employment. As you can see, it's around 70,000 in terms of total employment. Financial services has taken on the chin, and this, is, again, has a lot to do with the character of this last recession. This is very similar to the, the sort of pattern that most major cities saw, which is a shedding of financial services jobs that have been sort of slow to come back. 
And if you look at the last two, transportation logistics, again, fairly flat performance with a downturn that you would have expected during the recession. And then metal manufacturing, which has been declining consistently. And actually now, if you were benchmarking, it wouldn't be one of Chicago's five top clusters any longer. If you look at wages, this is why these clusters matter. If you look at financial services, the top line, the average wage in financial services is $132,000 in Chicago. So every financial service job added adds a lot of gross product to the economy and makes the economy sort of really tick. And in these other things, you also have significantly um, you know, attractive wages. So if you look at business services, you're looking at wages in the mid-70s. If you're looking at these other industries, such as transportation, logistics, and education and knowledge, it's less attractive, but you're still in the 50s in terms of the sort of the wages they're paying. So the growth in these particular sectors matter a lot. So this is the performance of Chicago relative to these clusters in a national sample. So this is the bad news, good news part of this particular story. So if you look at it, all the red numbers suggest that Chicago's change in employment over this period of time was below the US average, all right? So Chicago added fewer jobs in business services, education and knowledge, financial services, and then these sectors grew on a national average. If you look at wages, it's a similar story with the exception of financial services. Wages grew at a slower rate in Chicago than they did in the rest of the country. The one good news thing, and this is where, again, I leave it to you for interpretation, is that the Chicago wages across the board are significantly higher than their the peer group in the rest of the US. So financial services pay a lot more in Chicago than they do in the national sample of financial service clusters. Now this suggests one of two things. Either one, Chicago is phenomenally more productive and that's why we're able to support these higher wages, or we're on a longer term tra trajectory to decline, which is these wages have to fall to sort of meet the national average and suggest that Chicago is actually a somewhat bloated economy when it comes to some of these wages, that they're simply too high to sustain. So I'll leave that up to you to interpret as to whether that's good news or bad news in terms of that. Now, I've showed you this slide before, and this really motivates, I think, why there's all this interest right now in economic development studies in Chicago. And this is Chicago's sort of longer-term performance. So this is a figure that a colleague Bill Testa put together. And what it looks at is personal income growth, real personal income growth versus employment growth from 1969 to 2006. As you can see, Chicago, even during this period of time, which was a pretty heady time for Chicago in terms of what we thought of ourselves, actually wasn't doing that well. We're kind of in the middle of the pack in terms of sort of growth if you just plot these things. We're clearly doing better than what I like to refer to as the Three Stooges, Detroit, Cleveland, and Buffalo. Um, but we're clearly doing not as well as places like Minneapolis, which was the big winner over this period of time, which had sort of really phenomenal growth. And interesting, Pittsburgh, which has adopted sort of the other strategy that a lot of Midwest cities have looked at, which is not grow bigger, but grow richer, all right? So they don't add jobs, but they add a lot of income. They change the structure of their economy to be more high income based. But most people, I don't think, will have suggested that Chicago will have underperformed Cincinnati or Columbus or Indianapolis over this period of time, and yet it did. So as I said, I think this is what really motivated the sense of can we do better? And World Business Chicago, I'm not going to go into this a lot since you're going to have a program on this, um, has done a pretty good job of, uh, they brought in McKinsey and a number of other consultants to work with them to look at what is Chicago's position. And what they came up with is Chicago has a set of comparative advantages, which are pretty good. I mean, it's a pretty good base to work off. We're the only inland U.S. city with a global footprint. We have gross product of $500 billion. We'd be the 20th largest economy in the world if we were a country. And we have population growth that's slow, but it suggests that we'll be the only inland megacity by 
2030. So we'll have a population of over 10 million in the metro, um, which again will give us certain advantages relative to other places. They also identified that Chicago has five sort of key levers and assets. The first is, again, these economic sectors and clusters. Um, we're a highly diverse economy. No, more, um, no sector has more than 13% of our total employment. The largest sectors, again, these sort of trade and cluster sectors are highly productive, all right? So there's five sectors of Chicago's economy that explain two-thirds of all output for the economy. Um, so if you're thinking of, again, how well is financial services, wholesale and retail trade, manufacturing, healthcare, and transportation logistics are doing is really going to dictate how Chicago's future sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, works out. Human capital and educational institutions, again, we're really good on those sorts of things. Chicago is still a talent magnet for college students from the Midwest. Um, we have, obviously, outstanding educational institutions in town. Innovation and entrepreneurship is something that Chicago seems to be doing a lot better at. Um, the creation of the 1871 hub has certainly been an exciting thing. It's sort of given a geographic footprint to serve Chicago's sort of tech sector, which we didn't have before. Uh, physical and virtual infrastructure, again, Chicago's always had an advantage in those things. Public and civic institutions, the idea is Chicago is a more civically involved town, particularly for the business community, you know, groups like the Commercial Club, other sorts of organizations, and Chicago tends to have this sort of social capital that maybe other cities don't necessarily have. And then they came up with 10 strategies for Chicago's economic growth. And I'm not going to go into any of these in detail. Um, you know, the strategies, are, and these are no necessary order of importance, but the first is, is to sort of um, emphasize more work in advanced manufacturing. Um, there's been some discussion now of turning where the old Brock site was into some sort of a, a manufacturing research tech park. Um, there's been a sense in which you might be able to bring some of those advanced manufacturing jobs back into um, the city of Chicago, and this might help with non-college educated populations in the city. Um, and it would work off of the fact that Chicago's got these logistics and transportation advantages, which could play to manufacturing. Um, increase the region's attractiveness for business services and headquarters. Um, clearly, headquarters relocations appear like almost every week the Emanuel administration announces another um, headquarter that's moving into the city. Um, the bad news has been, for the most part, this seems to be at the expense of the suburbs. Um, so in many cases, these are relocations from metro Chicago into downtown Chicago. So um, it's a good thing, I think, for the city of Chicago. It's a little problematic maybe for our suburban counterparts. Um, enhance the competitive position as a transportation logistics hub, make Chicago a premier destination for tourism and entertainment, make us a leading exporter, um, develop a workforce that's more demand-driven, which is having firms have more input into the training system so that we're matching our labor force maybe a bit more efficiently, um, support entrepreneurship and innovation, um, next generation infrastructure. Again, one of the ways Chicago's trying to do that is through things like the, the public-private um, infrastructure bank, having a, a, a different structure for bringing infrastructure projects to the fore that doesn't rely exclusively on, on public funding. Um, neighborhood vitality, which Chicago's always been known as a city of neighborhoods and sort of investing in that seems like a good, strong thing. And then having a good business climate. So what's the dark crowd on the horizon for both executing this particular plan and for the state of Illinois? Well, we're broke, all right? Um, 
the, the, the increase in the personal income tax and the business income tax rate um, really didn't make a dent in almost anything in terms of our liabilities. Um, the pension liability has grown since um, the uh, increase was put in place. We really haven't worked down our unpaid bills. Um, the state has about $6 billion in essentially floating unpaid bills um, that they're, they're working. And in theory, the tax increase starts to phase out in 2015, all right? So if we can't pay it off with more revenue, it's hard to see how we're going to pay it off with re less revenue. Um, in addition, GASB, which is the Accounting Standards Board for Governments, is coming up with new regulations for how you have to reflect pension liabilities. This will blow up the state of Illinois' pension liabilities significantly because it's going to allow you to use a much lower discount rate um, <clears throat> for figuring out what, um, what your investment returns are going to be in the future. So Illinois' pension liabilities will look a lot worse real soon uh, for nothing other than for accounting reasons. Um, how bad is it? The Civic Federation in the end of June reported that the unfunded liability is just a tick under $100 billion at this point. We have a funded ratio of 39%. That's the worst in the country of any um, state by, by some measure. Um, if nothing changes to give you the magnitude of this, by 2016, we'll be spending more on pensions than we're going to be spending on K-12 education in the state of Illinois. It will have a larger claim on the budget. And as one person said, you know, if, if you want to be really pessimistic about this, the way you would think about this is that uh, Illinois, will, Illinois government will largely become sort of an insurance and pension agency that uh, has a couple of other programs on the side, all right? So, um, so that, that's not a, a good thing. Um, we've been consistently been given negative outlooks in terms of our credit ratings at this point. Um, our A2 rating is the worst in the country. There's expectation this will be downgraded again after we failed to get a pension deal in the most recently adjourned um, uh, um, lame duck session of the legislature. And the real critical issue for us is we have real needs right now for investing in infrastructure in the state. And this kind of pension liability makes it very hard for us to be able to sort of fund future debt, uh, what I would like to consider productive debt, which is debt that, again, would go towards building things that will help enhance the economic competitiveness of the, of the state. So that's a bad news. Um, so what's the impact of this fiscal uncertainty? Well, current, currently we're not in that bad a shape. I mean, I have to emphasize this. If you look at current Illinois tax rates, even with the rate increase, we're essentially competitive with most of our neighboring states, all right? We are not a high tax state on the basis of what our current tax rates. The issue, however, is, is if you factor in all these long-term liabilities that you think at some point might have to be paid, you can't assume that the current tax rates will stay fixed, all right? That if anything, you're looking at some sort of either future, significant future tax rate increases, or you're looking at few significant cuts in state services to sort of bring all this stuff back into balance. So if the answer is, is essentially you're going to charge people higher taxes and you're going to give them re reduced services, this is never a popular idea. I mean, you're going to pay more for less um, to sort of get us back to balance. And that's the problem. It's, it's this working out this problem over a period of time and actually having a plan for doing it. The biggest issue for Illinois has, tr has always been the need to have some sort of plan that's both comprehensive and binding um, so that once we get on a path to sort of repaying this debt, that we actually are kind of hardwired into actually doing this. Um, Illinois famously, many, many years ago, adopted what they called was a pension ramp 
for funding the state's underfunded pension balance. And if you looked at this ramp, it was a 40-year build-out to sort of get us back to about 90% funded. And it, was in, it seems on paper entirely reasonable. But what you saw in this was, one is, is there was no actual requirement that you actually funded any of the points along this ramp. So essentially, you continued to underfund throughout that. And then secondly, the way the ramp was even built wasn't exactly what you would think of as a sort of a nice gradual curve. It was more what one person referred to as a hockey stick, which is the ramp essentially caused absolutely no pain until like year 20, in which case it takes off like kind of like a bat out of hell. And then all of a sudden, it's like the whole budget goes to paying for pensions. So it wasn't a reasonable ramp to begin with. So yeah, again, you have to have a binding, comprehensive solution that's going to require some degree of discipline to actually pay off. And that's going to be very tricky um, given the, sort of the environment that Illinois has been facing. So conclusion. So the good news is Illinois and Chicago started to show some life in the second half of 2012. A lot of people think that we're going to see even more sort of re Right, sort of gains being made, particularly in the second half of this year, as we sort of catch up in the rate of growth. But it's not going to be, again, sort of spec spectacular and exciting. Um, we're still lagging. It's a very slow climb out. And longer term, I think the, the biggest issue is still going to be this fiscal issue, which is, you know, the, the closer Illinois can get back to some sort of balance in the way it's doing things, the more certainty there is the government's actually going to be able to carry out some of the things that are necessary at this point to sort of enhance economic growth rather than, than uh, you know, serving as a sort of a drag on economic behavior right now. So thanks very much. Appreciate your time and attention. Yep, we're good. Um, so we're talking about manufacturing being, uh, you know, uh, strong and coming back. And, and uh, what what areas of manufacturing are you seeing that are, are really driving it? And, and what do you think um, is is promoting that relative well, to other sectors? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a couple of things. One has obviously been the the you know low value of the dollar. So I mean, it's been the advantage there. Energy, which Bill talked about, I think is a key factor, which is many of their costs have actually abated pretty much. You know, the big issue right now is there's a lot of discussion about reshoring right now, which is this notion of jobs coming back to the U.S. And there's still a debate as to where that's going to occur because, I mean, some of the studies, um, Boston Consulting Group's done a lot of studies on this, have suggested that you'll still see the, the bulk of the reshoring occurring mostly in the southern United States. Um, that, you know, they still have a low cost advantage over us, which, again, is why I think the economic development plan for Chicago emphasized this kind of advanced manufacturing, not bulk manufacturing, but sort of highly specialized, more technical kind of manufacturing that can survive in a higher cost environment. Um, so I think that's, that's the issue for us, which is we might, we may add some very high quality manufacturing jobs within Chicago and Illinois. It might not be a lot of them, though. Uh, Bill, uh, we were talking before the lunch about uh, unemployment statistics and with the, uh, the Fed now linking its increase in interest rates to the unemployment numbers. Um, maybe you could share with us, maybe go a little deeper than we did earlier, about the various different measures of unemployment. You were starting to talk about U1, U2, U3, U4, U5, all those different kinds of measures. And then what is going to be included in the Fed's decision to increase its uh, rates? Uh, which one of those levels or what's included, what's not? Uh, really appreciated your explanation of total employment versus the unemployment rate, which is very helpful. But could you elaborate just a little bit? Yeah, I think, um, you know, with regard to the 
discussion of numbers of the unemployment rate that are present through the monetary policy side, um, you know, those are all suggestions. I mean, it's, it's a way of trying more of communication strategy to the tip general public and uh, of what we're thinking about um, and, you know, trying to link better our dual mandate of trying to have, uh, you know, not just inflation under control, but a labor market that is near full utilization. Um, and so, you know, I think that we, we look at that. Mainly what we often talk about is what's called the official statistic, U3, uh, which is the one that's published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's the headline number um, that is out there. And uh, as you go up to U4, U5, U6, it adds different components to uh, what we normally would not think of as, as, as unemployed. So, uh, for example, um, it begins to add in factors like somebody who is, is employed, but they're employed at a job uh, that is either below their skill level, you know, a, a doctor or an engineer driving a cab, uh, or perhaps they are working 25 hours a week, uh, an individual is working 25 hours a week, but would like to work 40 hours a week, a full-time job. Uh, they would not be considered as unemployed since they are working, but they would be considered underemployed because of this need of, 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 of working part-time for what we call economic reasons. Uh, and then finally, uh, the U6 would then would also <laughs> add in uh, the discouraged worker, a person who would like to work, uh, but has been so frustrated with the process, uh, with the fact that they don't believe that there's a likelihood that they would get a job, they have actually stopped looking. And in order to be counted as part of the labor force, you need to be actively searching for a job. So even though somebody might want a job, if they're not actively looking, they are not counted as part of the part of the employment statistics, the labor force. So they would not be that would be considered again a discouraged worker. That that is added back in to the U6. Um, so while we have the 7.8 percent for the U3, um, the U6 I think brings it up to about a, a top of my head. I believe it's like 14 and a half percent. Yes, if you could put the top three items on Madigan's agenda to help get the state turned around, what would those three be? You've already alluded to pension, but what would the top three points they need to accomplish? Well, I, yeah, I, I, obviously the pension. I mean, again, having a, um, a credible plan for how you're going to pay off this, this debt that's been encumbered um, and figuring out is number one. Um, you know, number two, I, th I think, again, this is my wish list, would be um, some form of tax reform. Um, you know, Illinois' tax structure isn't uh, particularly efficient or intelligent given the structure of the state's economy, and there's ways in which I think you could do some sort of comprehensive tax reform that could actually enhance some of the state's uh, benefits. And then the last thing is investments in infrastructure. I mean, you know, Illinois, you know, Chicago, for example, has lots of wonderful infrastructure, but a lot of it's very old, um, needs replacement, and we need to come up with creative ways to sort of have the best infrastructure because, you know, as, as I, I, I talked to one Chinese delegation and they were talking about building the subway in their particular city and they were saying how much they like the L system. And I said, well, yeah, but the reality is if you were building a state-of-the-art transit system today, it wouldn't look like the L, you know. Um, you know, so um, you would have something that looked a whole lot better than that. So, you know, that's the kind of competition you're looking for. So how can you improve the efficiency? And it really had, infrastructure is really an important factor in improving the efficiency of the state. Thank you very much, Thanks. Bill and Rick. A uh, round of applause, please.
And please remember to fill out your surveys. See you in February.